Hey everyone, it's Ted and Angela. Uh, we lead a community group in the Hamlin Moveway area with Brett and Laura. And today we're going to be reading Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church at home again. Um, we're really glad that you're able to worship with us this morning uh, here online in case you missed it, we are going to be worshiping online uh, at least through the end of the year, and then we'll kind of reevaluate and see how things are going uh, with COVID cases in our area. We just really want to make sure that we're keeping everybody safe and healthy. Um, and actually, it's really kind of fun that we all get to worship together in one way uh, over the Advent season, because we kind of had been doing in-person and online at the same time. Uh, but this is a fun way for us to all be together and to celebrate um, as one big church family. So if you're new or if you are just checking us out, my name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here and a special welcome to you. If you just happen to stumble across us, uh, we're really glad that you're joining us as well. So today we are starting our Advent series, even though it's technically the second Sunday of Advent. As you can see, we've got the two candles lit uh, this week. Um, and we're calling this series Unexpected Advent. Uh, I could have gone with unprecedented Advent, but I think we're all a little sick of hearing that word at this point uh, in the year. And so we decided to go with unexpected. And we understand that for a lot of us, uh, this Christmas is going to look a lot different than what we're used to. It's unexpected. Um, and for some, that might be a good thing. And for some, that can be really difficult and really challenging. And actually, that's okay, because when we look at the Christmas story uh, and about the narrative of Jesus coming to earth, there are actually a lot of really unexpected things about it. 
And so we felt like this was a a fitting topic to kind of examine the story of Jesus's birth and talking about and looking at kind of the unexpected ways that God works, uh, especially through this particular story. So we're going to look at the first chapter and a half of Matthew over the next couple of weeks. Um, And the book of Matthew, as you just heard, starts with everybody's favorite, a genealogy. Um, and thank you to Ted and Angela for reading that for us. Thank you so that I didn't have to do it. Uh, but seriously, let's give them some credit. That is not an easy passage to read. Um, thank you guys so much for being willing to do that. And so we're going to talk about what is unexpected about Jesus's genealogy this morning. And in order to do that, we really first have to understand genealogies. Um, So when I was in the sixth grade, I had teachers who just loved, loved, loved to give projects. I swear I had a project every week and they were like not easy things to accomplish for a sixth grader. And so one of these big projects that we had to do was all about our ancestry. We were supposed to um, kind of create a like a, a genealogy of sorts of our family and talk to our grandparents and find out, you know, when did people come to America and how and all these different things about it. And we were supposed to like bring in some kind of food that our family had typically made for uh, that was like specific to our lineage. And I have to tell you, my family does not, we're not like super um, connected to our heritage. I'm, my mom's side of the family is German. And so that's kind of what we went with. But like my mom and I definitely kind of um, fudged some of the information a little bit about our family because honestly, we just didn't know. And when I think back, I'm like, that's a really difficult task for a lot of families. A lot of families are not that connected to their heritage for different reasons. Um And so I'm a little surprised they did that project, but we had to kind of change some of the details to make it fit because we just didn't have all of the answers. And as I I was thinking about genealogies and learning more about them, uh, in the time that Matthew was writing them, they were not so much like if you were just to go on Ancestry.com and get like, here's the exact list of everybody and here's all the information. They weren't written because someone was curious about where they came from and what their family did and when they moved around and all these different things. Genealogies in Jesus's time were all about telling a story. They were about telling the reader of the genealogy who this person is and what they are and who they're going to be. What will they be like? And so When I think about that project I did in the sixth grade, I definitely think that we kind of filled that a little bit more. We were we were running in the genealogy idea of let's just tell a story of of who I am and who our family is. So if you're uh, still got your comment section open, I'd love if you want to or if you know, you can throw in your ancestry or your heritage. If you're um, if you know that kind of stuff about your family, totally no pressure if you don't or if you don't want to share. But it's just a funny thing to see um, and to hear, like, how much do you actually know about your family? And so. As we think about genealogies, I really do want to challenge you this morning to think about it more like a resume. So Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, he says it this way. He says, Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it's also a resume. 
In those times, it was your family, pedigree, and clan, the people you were connected to, that constituted your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. So if you are one of the people who actually reads uh, the genealogies in the Bible and you don't just skip over them, which I think a lot of us do, uh, you may notice that not all the genealogies in the Bible are 100% accurate if you're expecting them to be like something off of Ancestry.com. They oftentimes will skip generations or they'll um, have different things that might not be the same if you were to compare them to other genealogies. For example, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke and compare it to the one in Matthew, there are actually some differences. So some of them... um, In Matthew's genealogy, he mentions some women connected to Jesus's line, and Luke does not. Matthew's goes uh, back to Abraham, whereas Luke's goes all the way back to Adam. And Matthew's and Luke's, they go through different sons of David in the line. So you'll notice that there are just differences. And again, as I'm, you know, thinking about this project I did in the sixth grade, it's much more about telling a story about who Jesus is and who he's going to be. So again, I'm asking you to think about it a little bit differently than you might normally. And so uh, there's a, another good quote from the book Hidden Christmas that again, just helps us kind of understand this because for some of you, you might be thinking, well, if it's not 100% accurate, then how can I trust it? If it's not, uh, you know, maybe that means the Bible's not trustworthy. Maybe I shouldn't read it. Maybe I shouldn't expect it to give me the answers that I'm thinking about or looking for. And so if you follow this resume example, Keller just says, it's interesting to know that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes just as they do today. They tend to leave out the parts of their track record that might not make them look so good. And people did that in ancient times too. And so there are actually historical accounts of kings and rulers in that time period who completely fictionalized their genealogies to make themselves look or fit a part um, that people expected them to. So Jesus's genealogy is not fictionalized. There's just some changes in it. And so if a genealogy is more like a resume, then we actually have to read them instead of skipping over them. Because if you think about them that way, they're really more like a story than just a list of names. And you know me, I'm all about story. So I actually really enjoyed digging into the genealogy uh, this week, and I hope that you will as well. So the first thing, the first kind of point that I want to look at is that Jesus is part of a line of God working through unexpected people. So if we're looking at the story that this genealogy tells about Jesus, it shows us that God works through unexpected people. So let's look at what Matthew says. Verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew gives us two big clues right away about what he's saying about Jesus, son of David and son of Abraham. So with both of these names, what are they, we want to look at, why are they important? What are they going to tell us about who Jesus is? And you find when you look at them that both David and Abraham are connected to big promises that God gave his people. So we're going to look at that. We're going to start with David. So a little bit about David. He was a king uh, of God's people of Israel, and he was uh, referred to as a man after God's own heart. He wrote a lot of the Psalms, um, and he's actually written about the most in the Old Testament, 
and the second most in the whole Bible. So he's right behind Jesus and how much of uh, the Bible talks about David. And when Israel thought back about their kings, they thought of David as the best. David is like a really, really big deal in Jewish history. But the unexpected thing about David is that nobody expected him to be king. He was the last choice of all of his brothers. Literally, Samuel, another guy in the Old Testament, who was told to go and find Jesse and that one of Jesse's sons would be the guy, would be the king. So Samuel goes there and he's like, hey, bring out your your sons so that I can see them and and decide which one, you know, God's going to tell me which one of these is supposed to be king. And David was so unassuming that they didn't even bring him out. They had all of the other sons go in front and and be, you know, considered as candidates. And at the end, Samuel was like, do you have any other sons? Because none of these are it. And, and they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, David, you know, maybe we should go get him. He's out with the sheep. Like we'll, we'll bring him in, even though it's probably not going to be him. So it was really unexpected, but God anointed him as king. And not only did God anoint him to be king, but God promised that his house and his line would rule forever, that the kingdom of David would endure for all time. So we see this in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14 and verse 16. So I'm just going to read that for us so we can hear the promise that was given to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So Matthew is establishing in this genealogy or in this resume that Jesus is going to be a king who is part of David's line in the way as the way that David's kingdom will rule forever. Now, if you think back to what I said about Matthew and Luke having slightly different genealogies for Jesus, this may be one of the reasons. So if you're interested in kind of those little details about how this works and, you know, why are they different? uh, Matthew is probably showing us more so that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's uh, kingship. And so that's why he traces the lineage through David's son Solomon, who was one of the kings who came after David, whereas Luke traces it through another son named Nathan. And so people think that the reason that Matthew is taking it through this line of Solomon is that he's trying to show us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the kingship, rightful heir to the throne, if you will. And again, this is unexpected because as we just, you know, if you've been with us for a while, we just finished up talking through Habakkuk. Uh, And in Habakkuk, you see that Israel is going to be taken into exile. And when they're taken into exile, it sort of seems as if this line of kings that's supposed to endure forever and reign forever is no longer happening, right? They're in exile. They're not really having a true king of their own. Um, And so a lot of people wondered, what is God doing? Is God not going to be faithful to this promise? How does this work? I don't understand it. And Matthew is saying, hey, wait a minute. God is faithful. He is keeping his word. He's saying, look, here comes a king who is in the line of David and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so now what about Abraham? That's the other clue that Matthew gives us right away. 
So Abraham goes even further back into the lineage. And again, for Jewish people, Abraham is a really big deal. He is like the OG. He is father of the faith. He is uh, the person that the Israelites think of when they think of God's promise, because God made a covenant promise with Abraham that uh, is kind of carried on throughout the scriptures and that people think about and go back to a lot. And again, if you're interested in the small details, uh, one of the reasons that people think that Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham and not all the way back to Adam is that Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So this would have really hit home with the people he was writing to. Okay, so let's look at the promise that Abraham is given. It's in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. It says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this promise was probably the most ironic thing for Abraham, because for a long time, Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren. They couldn't get pregnant. They were having difficulty conceiving. And here God is saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have tons of kids. And this is going to, you know, all these people will come from your line. And Abraham's probably like, are you kidding me? (laughs) We can't even have one kid. So a barren man becomes the father of the faith. It's definitely unexpected. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is actually a part of this promise. He's a part of Abraham's line, whose name will be great and will be a blessing to all people on earth. Matthew is painting a picture of who Jesus is, and that picture is the fulfillment of this huge, incredible promise that the Israelites have been waiting for so long to see happen. So Jesus is the long-awaited blessing to all people. And again, surprising and unexpected, since as the story goes on, we're going to see that Jesus is born in this tiny, unimpressive town that people literally referred to as hill country. So this is like out there, people like shepherds and the low people in society, they're some of the first people to hear about Jesus. They're the ones who are uh, in the area and coming to see him when he's born. And it's unexpected because if you are thinking about this heir to this, you know, forever line of kingship and the fulfillment of these covenant promises that people were waiting for for so long, you'd probably expect him to be born in a big city with impressive fanfare, with lots of people around and people gathering, maybe even a parade or something, right? Like you expect it to be a big deal. And that's not what we see happen. So we see that Jesus is a, lot, is a part of this line of God working through unexpected people in very unexpected ways. And ultimately, as the story goes on, as you learn more about Jesus, this really shouldn't surprise us because Jesus uh, is not someone who tends to work with impressive fanfare or impressive people. And that's actually going to be the second thing that we see in the genealogy. The second point I want to look at throughout this genealogy is just that Jesus gives dignity to unexpected people. If we go back to the idea, again, we're thinking about this, re- this genealogy as a resume. There are a lot of unexpected people on this list. Let's just say that if this was a resume, it would not be a very good one. Jesus puts, or Matthew puts all the wrong people on Jesus's resume. It's people who uh, would have been associated with shame, with failure, and people who are just, frankly, outsiders. 
So let's look at a few of the names in the genealogy that show us that Jesus is sort of associated with the wrong people or unexpected people. So first of all, this genealogy, as I mentioned before, includes women, which was basically unheard of. You have to remember that this was written in a patriarchal society. So nobody ever included women in genealogies. And you see that in Luke's genealogy. Women are completely left off the list. Uh, And if you were going to include women on a genealogy, you think you would probably want to include like the really important women, the the matriarchs of the family, the people who you um, might think of if you grew up in a church and you think of like the Bible stories that you learned as a kid. But instead, Matthew chooses some women who, uh, again, you wouldn't expect. He picks people like Tamar, who was poorly treated by Judah, or the wife of Uriah, who was abused by David, this king that I was just talking about, how great he was, how everyone looked up to him. And so when people are thinking about these women, they're not thinking like, oh, yes, these are the people of our faith. They're thinking, yeah, the wife of Uriah, that's, um, that brought a lot of shame on us. And that paints our, our King David, who we look up to so well, as not that great of a guy. So it's people that you wouldn't typically expect to see in a lineage. And going even further, there's even more uh, unexpectedness to that in that Matthew includes women who were not Israelites. And again, this genealogy is is supposed to be painting a picture of this king and this fulfillment of the covenant promises. And you would expect them to all be part of this people group that was fairly um, insular. They, you know, they really liked to be with people who are from their own tribe and from their own nationality. But instead, Matthew includes women like Ruth, the Moabite, and Rahab, who was a Canaanite and a prostitute. Again, not something you would normally include in a resume or a genealogy. But this genealogy is painting a picture of who Jesus is. And it shows us that Jesus gives dignity to the unexpected. He shows us that Jesus is a person who cares about the people who most of the society didn't. And he's giving dignity to them in a way that people didn't expect. He says, even though you were unfaithful, people of Israel, even though you were these women, even though you were treated poorly, even though you were abused, even if you don't fit in, you're still a part of my family. And as Jesus grows and starts his ministry, we see this as well. If you read through the rest of the gospel um, of Matthew, you see that Jesus hangs out with women and lets them learn from him, which for a rabbi in that time period was fairly unheard of. You see that he hangs out with prostitutes who in a shame and honor society would have brought shame upon Jesus by being around uh, someone like that. And he hangs out with tax collectors. Again, people who are very unpopular at the time. He hangs out with lepers, people everyone literally avoided, and Samaritans, people who are outsiders. And Tim Keller in his book puts it this way. He says, here then you have moral outsiders, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, and gender outsiders. The law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, and yet they are all publicly acknowledged as ancestors of Jesus. I want you to think about what that means for a second. Maybe you felt like an outsider before, or maybe you know people who have been ostracized or who feel like outsiders. 
I think we've all learned um, and have been talking more about how representation and recognition really matters for people to feel included. And an example I want to give, politics aside for a second, I don't care who you voted for or if you like them or whatever, that's not the point. Um, But we see an example of this in the president-elect and vice president-elect. So in Biden's victory speech, he said, we must make the promise of the country real for everybody, no matter their race, their ethnicity, their faith, their identity, or their disability. Sounds pretty standard to us, right? But for people with disabilities, this is actually only the second time that a president has publicly recognized them in a speech like that. And you could tell how much it mattered to that community based off of how they responded on social media, how many news articles were written about it, um, and just how they talked about it and how they shared that news. You could tell how much it made them feel seen and heard and included in a group that they normally felt like they were forgotten or left off of or not cared about. And I think, again, if we're going to talk about representation and thinking about the vice president-elect, you have to again, no matter if you like them or not, or if you voted for them, politics aside, if you think about what it means for women of color, that a woman of color is going to be the vice president of the United States, it's a huge deal. It matters. It makes people feel seen and feel like they have a place in this country. And I think it gives people dignity or it makes them feel like that. And again, this is just an example. It's it's not about politics, but it's just a an example of how recognition and inclusion in something can really make people feel like they matter. And that's the picture that Matthew is painting of Jesus. He's somebody that sees, who hears, and he gives dignity to the unexpected. The people that nobody else in the society cared for or wanted to value. So the message that Matthew gives here, and our first application point that I want us to take away, is just that no matter who you are, what your history is, how you identify, Jesus came for you. So no matter who you are, or what you do, or what you've done, what's been done to you, to Jesus, he still came for you. It's not something that excludes you from being a part of the family of God. And he's not just willing to acknowledge you in his speech like some politician. He actually lives it out. He makes you a part of the family. In believing and following Christ, you are part of that lineage too. You're part of the genealogy. You're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, and you're included. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, it was a totally normal practice to alter or even fabricate a genealogy to make it say what you wanted to say. So Matthew could have totally altered Jesus's line. He could have made it look like Jesus was the most impressive, the most, um, I don't know, everything that the society would have wanted. He could have put all of that in there uh, to make Jesus seem really cool, but he doesn't. Instead, he paints an unexpected picture for the person who's supposed to be the king and the fulfiller of God's promises. He doesn't act important or arrogant or above anybody. Instead, he humbly takes the place of an everyday man who hangs out with everyday people and gives dignity to the most unexpected people. Okay, so the last thing I want to look at in this genealogy that's unexpected actually has less to do with the names in the lineage and more to do with the timing. So uh, 
we're going to see that in this genealogy, God's timing is unexpected, but it is perfect. So if you look at the Bible, there are about 400 years of silence between the last prophet in the Old Testament and Matthew and the New Testament and people showing up and saying, here's the lineage of Jesus. 400 years. <laughs> That's a long time to wait in silence after you're used to hearing from God in very real ways. I'm sure that a lot of people probably were wondering, where is God? What is he doing? Is he even, does he even care about us anymore? Or is he even there? But Matthew is actually painting a picture that says quite the opposite. He's saying with this genealogy that God's timing is perfect. So let's look at verse 17 is where we get this from. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, in Matthew's time, there were certain numbers that had a lot of significance. Kind of like um, we think of the number 13 as unlucky. Uh, They had similar things like that where they had associations with numbers, and they're actually probably much stronger associations than what we have. We think of it as like, oh, yeah, that's kind of just a funny thing. People think the number 13 is unlucky. But to them, this was like a very real thing. And the number that meant the most was that uh, the number seven, and then therefore the number 14, because seven plus seven is 14, in case it's too early for math for you, because I know it definitely is for me. It's always too early for math for me. It's never, never time for that. Okay, so the number seven or the number 14 communicates perfection or completion. And so for Matthew to say that there are 14 generations between these different time periods and before Jesus, he's saying, hey, God's timing is perfect and it's complete in Jesus. So again, for those of you who read the genealogies and are into the details, Some people might refute this and say, oh, but it's not actually 14 because some of those generations were skipped, so we can't actually take that point. But again, you have to stay in the mindset of what genealogies were in that time period. And they were all about telling a story, to think about them as a resume. So if we're thinking about it as a story, then we're trying to figure out who Jesus is based off of this. And in this case, case, Matthew is saying, God's promises will find completion in this person, in Jesus. And ultimately, God's timing and his ways are perfect. Now, if you ask someone who was living in that time period, who was maybe living in those 400 years of silence, and you ask them if they felt like God's timing was perfect or his, uh, you know, was going to come to an ultimate completion, I'm going to guess that they probably would have said no. Because 400 years is a long time to wait in silence. And I'm sure that none of those people thought they were going to be waiting as long as they were. But God didn't give them a timeline. He didn't give them a a specific date to wait for and to circle on their calendar. They didn't know when and how things were going to happen. Sound familiar? (laughs) We are in a very similar place right now. As we've talked about with Advent, um, Advent means coming, but it's referring to two comings. It's referring to Jesus' birth and his incarnation, and then also to him coming back. And that second coming is the one that we are waiting for now. 
And in similar ways, we don't have a timeline. We don't have a day that we can look to and say, well, we know Jesus is coming back on this specific day. And if we can just make it to this point, then we'll all be okay. And I think that uh, the funny thing about it is the waiting, I don't think, is really the problem for us. If we had a day and we had um, a specific time to look forward to, I think we'd be more okay with waiting, right? Like I think there's something about knowing every year that Christmas is going to be on December 25th that actually makes the waiting kind of exciting, right? As a kid, you know, you waited for that day and there was this excitement and anticipation that kind of came around it. But when we don't know, when we're left in the dark, waiting, unsure when and how things will happen, it's a lot different. It's a lot less comfortable. And I think the reason is, is because when we have a day and a time and when we know those things, we have a little bit more of a sense of control, which is something that we really like. So I want to ask you guys, um, how many of you typically think of yourselves as people who like control? How many of you think of yourselves as type A or planners or, you know, someone who just likes to know like what's going on and what's going to happen next? I would probably put myself in that category, Um, not for all things, but specifically for things that will happen in the future. I definitely feel that way. Uh, But I want to ask you who don't feel that way, who wouldn't typically describe yourselves uh, in that way, have you noticed yourself feeling that at any point during the pandemic? Because if you haven't, wow, teach us your secrets. Because I think all of us at some point, even if we're not type A, even if we're not planners, have felt a little out of control in the last year. It's been hard to wait because we're not sure what's happening or how how things are going to turn out. And I recently heard an analogy uh, from Henry Cloud. He's an author and speaker. And he was talking about control in this way. He was saying... He compared it to driving a car. So he was talking about how when you're driving a car, typically you think of yourself as being in control. You're in control of the gas and how fast you're going. You're in control of the steering wheel, which way you're going to turn. You're in control of which route you want to take. And so when everything goes according to plan, you feel like driving a car is something you're 100% in control of. But when conditions are not normal... Uh, when things don't go according to plan, that's when we're reminded that we're not actually 100% in control. We're not 100% in control when construction blocks off lanes or closes exits and we have to totally reroute our, uh, our driving trip. We're not in control when the weather decides to be Minnesota weather and snow randomly or so hard that you can't see anything on the road I had never experienced that until uh, I was married to Joel and we were driving to his family's for Christmas and the wind was so bad that it's the whiteout conditions and you literally could not see anything out your windshield. That reminded me that I'm not 100% in control of driving. There are forces outside of me uh, that play a, a role in that. And I think that this is similar. He was using this analogy to talk about when conditions are normal in our life, we feel like we are 100% in control. So when life is going according to plan and things are normal, we feel like, yeah, I'm in control of my job and of my, um, you know, where I live and how I do things and when I go and do things. 
And it's not until conditions are changed or things are different that we realize, oh, I'm not 100% in control. There are still things I control. I control how I respond to situations. I control what I do with the changes around me. But ultimately, I don't have 100% control over my life. And I think that that's okay. (laughs) I think that's actually a really good thing for us. And this genealogy reminds us of that fact. This genealogy reminds us that God's timing and his ways are perfect. Jesus came at exactly the right time when he was born, and he will come at exactly the right time again. God is working in our lives and in our world now, and while we may not always see it or understand exactly how it works, we can still trust him. And I'm sure that the people in this genealogy didn't always trust God's timing. Even the prophets, who were literally given the words and messages of God, didn't understand everything. And we see that even with all of that, God will complete and fulfill his promises in exactly the right time. And honestly, I wish I had the answers. And I wish I could tell you, because I know how hard this is and how difficult this season of waiting has been and and dealing with all of these unexpected changes. But I think that in the waiting, it's actually a good thing for us because it reminds us that God is in control. And even through all the unexpected things of Christmas and of this year, the one thing that we can expect and the one thing we can hold on to is that God will keep his word. And that's our second application point for today. Um, I think the biggest picture that this genealogy paints for us, this biggest thing that God, that Matthew is showing us about God and about Jesus in this uh, genealogy is that God is faithful. He will keep his word. Even when it feels like he won't or things are so unexpected, uh, we can trust that he will continue to show up and he will continue to fulfill his promises to us. And waiting forces us to rely on God in that. It forces us to remember that and to not rely on ourselves, but to actually trust God. And that can be a really beautiful thing. And on this side of the cross and resurrection, we can actually see so clearly, so much more clearly than the people who waited in 400 years of silence could, that God is faithful because we have Jesus. We can look to his birth, to his life, to his death on the cross and his resurrection to know that God is faithful and he fulfills his promises to us. He came to be with us. He came to fulfill the promise of David's line and to be king. He came to be a blessing to all people in the way that God promised Abraham that his line would. He came to be with us no matter who we are uh, because he keeps his word and because he loves us. And we can trust him in that. So who would have thought that a genealogy, um, probably one of the passages you tend to skip over, could be such a great reminder of God's faithfulness. But it truly is. It truly shows us that through all the generations, God keeps his word and we can expect that. We can rely on it with everything we have. So I'm going to close this portion of the, uh, our time in prayer. Um, and then we're going to take communion together because that's actually another really great way for us to practically remember that God is uh, faithful, that he keeps his word. And it brings us back to the cross and the resurrection in a way that helps us remember that and helps us internalize it. So I'm going to pray for us. And then if you want to get your communion stuff ready after that, we will take communion together. Father, we thank you um, that you do work in unexpected ways. 
even though it is difficult for us to understand sometimes, um, and maybe it drives us a little crazy, we know that through your unexpected ways is how Jesus came to us, how he came, lived life here on earth uh, as God and as man, and lived a perfect life, took on all of our shame and all of our failures on the cross and rose again to take his uh, rightful place as king and that we can um, put all of our hope and trust in that. So Lord, we repent that we don't always believe that to be true. We don't always rely on you in the ways that we should. Um, And we just ask that during this Advent season, you would come to us, um, be with us, have your presence be with us in a way that helps us to rely on you, um, helps us to remember that we can expect you to keep your word and that you are faithful. In your holy name we pray, amen.